Hi everyone, this is Charles. Welcome back to another episode of the Zen Financial Podcast. This week, Rob McDougall, VP in Investment Strategy at Zen Financial, will lead the weekly market outlook, crunching last week's numbers and providing us what to look out for this upcoming week. If you are joining us on an audio-only platform, you can follow along with the slideshow listed in our show notes for more specific data. Rob, take it away. Welcome and happy Monday. This is Rob McDougall, investment strategist with Zang Financial out of Portage, Michigan. And we're going to go through our inaugural run-through of the U.S. market update, going through economic data and market statistics from last week, and taking a look at the next week and what that holds. So the agenda for this week, we're going to review last week's economic data, and then we're going to review how the markets reacted to that economic data. We're going to take a look at some of the key economic data that will be released this week, and then we're going to talk about specifically the U.S. recession status, which is certainly topical. So last week, we had six data points that were of significance, and all of them were underwhelming. And in fact, three were housing data-related data points, and they were all well below consensus. Additionally, one that is a bit concerning is the initial claims, and we'll look at that chart a little bit later. But initial claims for the U.S. were up to 251,000 last week versus a consensus of 240,000. So that's something to keep an eye on. So how did the market respond to this negative economic news? As always, it's usually a coin toss. And in this case, the equity markets and the bond markets actually rallied on this economic news. So for just the week last week, some of the laggards on a year-to-date basis did outperform. So in the U.S., small caps did very well. The Russell 2000 index was up 3.6%. And tech and large uh, large cap technology stocks did pretty well as well during the week. They've done very poorly on a year-to-date basis, but the NASDAQ was up 3.3% for the week. You can see in the right-hand column here the year-to-date numbers. So the NASDAQ still is by far the most, or is the underperforming index here, down 24.4%. Now, breaking it up between growth and value, which is very important to us as we do favor value, last week growth did outperform, up nearly 3.8%. U.S. value was up, but only 1.3%. So that was for last week. On a U.S. basis, it still certainly holds. U.S. value stocks have dramatically outperformed U.S. growth stocks, value stocks in the U.S. being down about 5.7%. The growth stocks in the U.S. a little over negative 29% for the year. And last year, uh, last week, the small caps in the U.S. actually outperformed, strongly outperformed large caps, 4.1% to 2.5%. Now, on a year-to-date basis, virtually no difference between small and large cap, slight advantage to small cap on a year-to-date basis. In terms of international markets, the world index was actually up better than the S&P 500, but as you scroll down, emerging markets close to the S&P 
and China lagged again up 1.2%. On a year-to-date basis, all three of these index have underperformed the S&P 500, the U.S. domestic index, which has been the case for the last 13 years. At some point, that's going to turn around. We're not quite sure when, but it has not yet. Last week, fixed income did well as well, uh, as well as equity. And as you can see here in the left-hand column, the one-week numbers all the way through, all five of these indexes are up strongly for the week. On a year-to-date basis, all of them down. And that uh, those with longer duration, particularly the U.S. Long Government Index, down 18.5% on a year-to-date basis. But I will say this, in terms of the equity and fixed income performance, Through the first four months of the year, very uh, bad for both of them. But fixed income seems to have stabilized. Equity has fallen a little bit further. So the difference between, say, an aggressive portfolio with 95% equity, 5% fixed, and a conservative portfolio with 20% equity, 80% fixed, there's quite a bit of difference now um, between the year-to-date performances of those two indexes. In terms of these sector returns, best performer last week, consumer cyclicals. You can see that's also been another sector that has done poorly on a year-to-date basis, down 24.9%. Utilities, which are the second best performing sector on a year-to-date basis, they were just slightly down last week, but on a year-to-date basis, they remain the second best performing sector. Uh, The one sector that is up this year and strongly up Energy did very well last week, uh, up 3.9%. And on a year-to-date basis, energy is up nearly 30%. In terms of the style boxes, again, we favor small cap. We favor value. We prefer them. Uh, In terms of what worked last week, best performing was mid-cap growth. The worst performing relative was U.S. large value, up 0.82%. However, on a year-to-date basis, when you take a look at the top-performing style boxes, all three are value. U.S. small value, U.S. mid-value, and U.S. large value. Now, let's segue to the economic data that's going to come out this week. We've got a number of uh, data points that are going to hit, but by far the two most significant are the FOMC rate decision, which is going to hit on Wednesday, And then on Thursday, the U.S. GDP second quarter first estimate will be coming out. So in terms of the FOMC, um, it will be, as always, very interesting to read the language and see if they've changed their view on the economy. Uh, They are hawkish at this point, and uh, clearly they have signaled that they're going to be raising rates significantly. So in terms of this particular meeting, The Fed fund futures have priced in a probability of 75% that we get at least a 75 basis point increase uh, on Wednesday and a 25% chance that we get another 25 or a total of 100 basis points. So what does that look like for the full year? Currently, the Fed futures are now pricing in the expectation that we're going to have at least 200 basis point increase from today's level, which is currently 150 to 175 basis point target, 90% probability that we're going to get another 200 basis points by the end of the year. Now, I would say our expectation is 
I don't think we're probably going to see all of these increases. If we're right about where the economy is heading, and it is indeed decelerating, and if inflation eases off, we've got one data point coming up that I think suggests it might, that I'm not I'm doubtful that there, we're going to see that many increases through the rest of the year from the Fed. In terms of GDP growth, uh, you, if you think back to late last year, early this year, the expectation was we were going to have strong GDP growth in the first quarter. And throughout the first quarter, expectations continually came down. And ultimately, we ended up with a negative GDP growth. That is real GDP growth, negative it was 1.4. I think the revisions now have it at negative 1.6. Here in the second quarter, the same trend has continued. Expectations were for growth here in the second quarter, and they've continued to slide all throughout the quarter and here in early July. So the expectation now for second quarter GDP by the Federal Reserve Bank of Atlanta, they expect a negative GDP growth, real GDP growth, of negative 1.6%. So as many as have heard, and I've been, I've definitely been saying this, two quarters in a row define of negative GDP growth defines a recession. However, that's not actually accurate. And uh, Janet Yellen was on the news services this weekend explaining why, and she's got a point. U.S. recessions uh, are called by the National Bureau of Economic Research. They determine whether or not we're in a recession. So if you ever notice, you go back and take a look at all the data points of when recessions start and stop. They're not on a quarterly basis. They could be on any given month. That's because the uh, National Bureau of Economic Research slices and dices the info and is not based on GDP alone, which is reported quarterly. So I show here on this page several of the other metrics that they take into account is when they determine if we're in a recession. Real personal income, non-farm payrolls, real personal consumption, manufacturing, household employment, and industrial production. So the expectation is we will probably have that second consecutive quarter of negative real GDP growth here in the second quarter. But the strong likelihood is the National Bureau of Economic Research will not call this a recession, at least yet. Uh, the reason why is, I think largely, is because of jobs and unemployment. If you think back to other recessions that we've had and you think of the unemployment stats and how, that, how badly that rises during recessions and jobs lost and layoffs, we have not seen virtually any of that. Now we're starting to see some from larger corporations, some of the tech companies, Ford, but we haven't seen it across the board. So last week I mentioned uh, the unemployment claims. New claims were uh, 251,000, a little bit higher than expected. But here's a trend this year, going back to early May. So it's elevated from them, but not dramatic. And we know the unemployment rate continues to be near the lowest it's been uh, in decades. In terms of job creation, last month, 372,000 jobs were created. The expectation was only 268,000. Now you could argue the last four uh, months have been well below what we saw before. That, that's true. But I think a run rate around 400,000 of new job creation is pretty solid. Again, when I combine the new jobs with the unemployment claims, with the unemployment rate, again, I would argue I don't think the National Bureau of Economic Research 
is going to call this a recession yet until we see some real cracks in employment numbers. Here's another data point that they look at, the National Bureau of Economic Research. That's the ISM Manufacturing Index, the PMI. I often talk about this particular chart. Uh, this is a survey. It's scaled at 50. So anything over 50 means expansion. Anything under 50 means contraction for the economy. Uh, certainly last month, we did have a tick down. It is down to 53. That is still a very solid reading. So again, that would certainly suggest we're not in recessionary territory at this point. So when you take a look at all the issues in the market, it you, most of these really boil down to one large issue, and that's inflation. Of course, last month was 9.1, the highest we've seen in 40-some years. It was above consensus. We're not going to make a prediction as to what that is going to look like for the month of July, but as most of you have probably seen at the pump, we're getting some relief there. So uh, we would not be surprised to see, the un or <laughs> to see the inflation rate drop for the month of July and potentially start a trend. So I think um, the market definitely is telling us the expectation for inflation is it's going to roll over. And this chart here would argue it has to roll over relatively soon. This is a chart I've shared with many of you. It's the 10-year break-even. It simply takes the yield from the 10-year Treasury, subtracts out the 10-year Treasury Inflation Protected Security yield, and gives you what is the embedded embedded expectation of inflation. So for the next 10 years, that metric shows expect, expectations for inflation of 2.34% for the next 10 years. So obviously, math-wise, if we're running at 9.1% right now, and we're going to average 2.34% for the next 10 years, that would suggest the number has to come down relatively quickly and strongly. So consumer sentiment. This is uh, tightly, I think, tied to inflation expectations. Um, consumers are reticent to spend. Uh, the consumer sentiment survey rose a little bit in July, but came down so dramatically in June. But this is the one metric that most definitely we have to see improvement in. U.S. consumers have to feel confident in spending, confident that inflation is at or near its peak. So I would argue that the U.S. consumer is in pretty good shape historically in terms of their ability to spend. I've shown a chart several times this year with updates of the U.S. consumer balance sheets, and uh, they're not in the best position ever, which was at the end of 2021, but they're still at the end of the first quarter, they're still in very good shape. Obviously, the stock market decreases hurt a little bit. Real estate values have come back down a little bit, and credit card debt definitely has risen over the first six months of this year. However, bottom line is consumers most definitely can spend more. They have the ability, they need the willingness, so consumer confidence is going to be a key to any recovery getting us back to real GDP growth. So we've talked about the U.S. Obviously, things have slowed here, maybe in a recession, close. Uh, how about the rest of the world? Sort of seeing the same thing.
So this is a OCC, OECD. Their expectations for 2020 GDP growth for every major country. And you can see they slashed expectations for worldwide GDP growth in early June, going down from 4.5% annual to 3%. That's a massive change for obviously the world economy. So it's not just the U.S. that's being impacted. And obviously, as, as many of you know, it's been pointed out a lot in the press, um, inflation is not just a U.S. issue. Throughout Europe, they're around where we're at in terms of inflation, maybe a little less, in some cases a little more. But inflation is hurting worldwide growth, uh, most certainly. So we do have one data point so far in terms of GDP growth for the second quarter. The country of China posted theirs a week and a half ago. China avoided, uh, for at least this quarter, negative growth. They came in at 0.4%, which was below expectations of a positive 1.0%. But China, if you've been paying attention or have heard, big COVID shutdowns during the second quarter. So if indeed they did post a positive GDP growth in the second quarter, that's fairly impressive. So wrapping all this up, and we'll end most of these broadcasts, uh, podcasts with the same conclusion. What do we do with all this information? It's confusing, conflicting, economic data moving all over the place, certainly some negative trends, some positive stability. Uh, So what do we do? What do we do with our portfolios? We would argue at Zang Financial, you don't make changes in your portfolio based on your gut feel for how the economy is going to go or for any other reason. We know market timing over long term, it just does not work, does not pay. So the best approach always, well-balanced, well-diversified portfolio with a solid strategy that you don't change midstream, that has always resulted in the best results over the long term. So I'll end the first podcast here. Thank you for your time. I'd ask you to join us again next week for the next update. Thank you. Thank <laughs> you.